Welcome to the Bob Siegel Show podcast on the Cross Global Media Radio Network. Visit cgmradio.com slash bob to subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform. For several months now, I've been teaching a weekly study in the book of Hebrews. And it's really interesting in these book studies because, as you probably know, the chapters and verses were not in the original manuscripts. So a lot of times we see an unusual verse, sometimes right at the beginning of a chapter. There have been cases where they've started chapters even in the middle of sentences. But when something is confusing or needs clarification or perhaps we're reading a passage and we're thinking, well, there's one or two ways you might be able to take this. Sometimes if we just go back and look at what came immediately before it or perhaps immediately after it, there is clarification. Now, in the 11th chapter of Hebrews, which I did a couple of weeks ago with my class, they give this great example of people from the Old Testament. Now, you need a little bit of background. Hebrews was written to a church of primarily Jewish Christians who were seriously considering that they had made a mistake turning from Judaism to Christianity. They were thinking of going back, some because of their love for old Judaism. Uh, However, there was also a persecution that was starting to go on in the church. And I know when when we watch the movies, it's always the Romans who are the bad guys, the Romans who are persecuting people. While Israel was still a nation, conquered nation, the nation of Judea, conquered by the Romans, but still given some religious freedom under the Romans. And there was even a a puppet government called the Sanhedrin under the Romans. You'll recall they voted to have Jesus executed, then they turned Jesus over to Pontius Pilate. Anyway, at that time, the early church was being persecuted from Jews. Now, if you think I'm making an anti-Semitic statement, I am Jewish. I am a Jew who converted to Christianity. And again, it was Jews who had converted to Christianity. So these are Jews persecuting Jews. And I'm acknowledging that as a Jew. So I know we're in real woke, politically correct times where every time somebody sneezes, you think you're hearing racism. You're not hearing it here, folks. Relax. But anyway, that's why this book was written. And he's trying to encourage them not to go back and not to give in even in the face of persecution. So he gives some examples of some of the things that the heroes in the Old Testament days went through. Many of them he lists by name. Others he talks about more generally, surviving persecution, being willing to give their lives, trusting God to do miracles. Here then is how he starts chapter 12. And it was important that I gave you that context of chapter 11. And I'm reading from the New International Version. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So, the first point here is that the Christian is being watched. By whom? Well, we're told a cloud of witnesses. And apparently the witnesses that he's talking about, and this is why context is so important, they're described in the last chapter. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, King David, just to name a few. Why are they called witnesses? Well, there are a couple of theories that theologians have put out. One theory suggests that, no, these are not people that are watching us now, but they're witnesses in the sense that they too were witnesses for God. They too 
too, were martyrs, many of them, for God. So that interpretation suggests that the Old Testament heroes are not necessarily looking at us right now, but rather we are simply surrounded by the memories of the past witnesses. The other possibility is that since these men are alive now in heaven, they can see us right now from heaven. They are witnesses to our actions. All right, ladies and gentlemen, incredible as it sounds, I believe that theory two is the accurate interpretation. And I'll give you my reasons. One is the immediate context. The Christian is described here as running a race. A race in those days meant either the Olympic Games or the somewhat hijacked Olympic Games that they had in the stadiums of Rome. Comparison of the Christian life to the life of an athlete was very common in the New Testament. Although Paul didn't write the book of Hebrews, he did write a lot of the New Testament. And it was quite frequent and common for Paul to use the analogy of an athlete keeping his body under discipline with a Christian keeping their spirit under discipline. So they're comparing the Christian life to a game, a contest, a race. The Greek games were spectacles witnessed by large crowds of people. From numerous other scriptures, we know Christians are watched by angels. So it's certainly conceivable that we can also be seen by other inhabitants of heaven, specifically the souls of those human beings who have passed on. Now, the Bible says those souls are actually resurrected when they get to heaven. Uh, That's a metaphysical discussion for another time. But we do seem to have an example of this in another incident known as Christ's Transfiguration. And I'm reading here from Matthew chapter 17. This is Jesus before he went to the cross. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified, but Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. Okay, so they're getting kind of a sneak preview here of Jesus coming in his kingdom, and he's talking to two people who had lived in this world long ago. One of them was Moses. Moses had died. His death is recorded in the book of Deuteronomy. It's even mentioned that he was buried. Elijah had a somewhat different fate. Elijah did not experience death. He was one of the first human beings to actually get raptured. We've talked about the rapture of the church at other times. Elijah was taken up into heaven without experiencing death. This was witnessed by his own disciple and protege who saw him get carried up in a chariot. But the point is, these were two men, one who had died the natural way, one who had gone to heaven without dying, but they were two men in heaven. And here they are interacting with Jesus and they're talking with him about the fact that he's going to the cross soon. They're talking as though they're very involved with the drama that's about to unfold. By the way, just a little sidebar here. A number of years ago out at the University of California in San Diego, I was doing a debate with a man named Gordon Stein. Very nice guy. He's, he's since passed away. He's the late Gordon Stein, but he was the editor of a rationalist magazine. He challenged me to a debate. There were several hundred people that attended. And during one of his turns, he was trying to show how the Bible contradicts itself. And he says, well, Jesus was obviously a false prophet because uh, he went back and he, I was just, this is another 
great lesson in looking at the scripture in context. I just read to you from Matthew 17. Well, Gordon Stein got up that night and he read from Matthew 16. And in Matthew 16, while Jesus was talking, he said to the crowd, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his glory. And of course, his point was, well, those people that listened to Jesus not only died, but they died over 2,000 years ago. So when Jesus said there's some people standing here who will not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his glory, that was simply not true. It makes Jesus a false prophet. I looked out in the audience. Now, again, a big crowd, a lot of people I didn't know, but there were a lot of Christian friends, people that are in my ministry, and I did know them. They looked very worried. There was a lot of this, boy, how's Bob going to get out of this one? And I got up there and I said, folks, the Bible's been around for a long time. All we have to do is read it in context. Why do you suppose Matthew even wrote this? Because he's about to go on and explain himself. And it was immediately after this passage that Matthew shares that Jesus took those three disciples and Peter, James, and John were the three disciples Jesus spent the most time with. He took them up there and what did they see? They saw the Son of Man coming in his glory. Jesus turned radiant and glowing and white and they heard the voice of the Father and they saw resurrected beings, Moses being resurrected. And even in the case of Elijah, when he went to heaven, he would have been resurrected in the sense that he would have been transformed from mortality to immortality even though he didn't experience death. This is what the Apostle Paul says is going to happen to all Christians who've given their lives to Jesus, or at least uh, some will be resurrected after dying, but many who will be alive at the time Christ comes, all Christians who are still alive when Christ comes, like Elijah, will be automatically resurrected. But the point is, here's a resurrection of other people, inhabitants of heaven. They're seeing Jesus in his glory. It's a sneak peek. It's like being in a movie theater and watching a preview and they are witnessing this. So this is very, very key. But again, what are they talking about? Christ's crucifixion, which suggests somehow they are involved in this story that is about to unfold. So that's part of the context that we've seen this before, but also the context even later on, even later on in Hebrews chapter 12. I'm reading now, jumping ahead to verse 22. Again, this writer writing to the church, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So they've come to God, judged the spirits of righteous men made perfect. So obviously he's using Old Testament people as an example, but apparently this means anybody that's passed away. Maybe you have a favorite aunt or grandparent or other kind of loved one or dear friend who's passed on. They can still see you from heaven. Now, why would God go out of his way to tell us this? Why would he go out of his way to remind us that we have witnesses? Well, one reason would be our behavior. At least this is a very reasonable guess because behavior obviously is what this writer is calling it to. As human beings, we have a tendency to modify our behavior based on the company we keep. Now, to be honest, sometimes this is surface hypocritical. Sometimes it's just a phony performance. Let me say this as carefully as I can. I don't believe a Christian should ever perform or act like a Christian just because he or she is around other Christians. On the other hand, at other times, it's natural, it's understandable, and it's justified to modify behavior because our company serves as a reminder of the way we really want to be. You see my point? If we really want to be 
spiritual. If we really want to be walking with God and being around other Christians or going to church or a Bible study is reminding us of something we truly want to do anyway, then that inspiration, that modification of our behavior is a good thing. If we don't truly honestly care about being that way, but we're modifying our behavior just because we want to be popular, we want to make friends, and we want to impress people, that's something else. So human beings could do exactly the same thing, but for two different reasons. And God looks at the motive. Now, I've looked back at my life. As I grew up, I remembered feeling and acting like a completely different person depending on who I was around. When I was in high school and I got home, I was very, very quiet. My parents could never get a word out of me that no, no, those who know me today have trouble thinking of me as a quiet person. Plenty of my high school friends back when I was 16, 17 years old had trouble thinking of me that way. But I'd come home from school and and, uh, I was very uncomfortable, particularly around my dad. I talked with my mom a little more, but at the dinner table, how was school today? Fine. What'd you do? Nothing. I remember one day my dad said, boy, you don't talk very much. I'm thinking, boy, if he could be around some of my friends, he wouldn't be saying that. At school, I was joking. I was carefree. I was loud. I was a drama major. They don't usually have quiet people as drama major. I mean, I was a drama major in college, but I spent a lot of time in drama in high school. It was like being a drama major there. I got thrown out of my drama class one time because I started doing an impersonation of a violin while my teacher was trying to talk. But back in those days, I remember feeling like a different person around my girlfriend than I felt around my best friend. I felt different around younger people than I did around older people. And so around Christians, we become who we are as a Christian. Just think if you're feeling sinful. There are days when we're feeling sinful, we're feeling carnal. Maybe we're even about to go out and commit a sin, or we already have, and then we we bump into a Christian. We bump into some brother or sister that we know. It's almost like party is saying, excuse me, I was about to go commit a sin. Who wants to be reminded of God when we're in a rotten, carnal mood? Which leads to the next point. There are times when we can't be in the church. If we were to go through a time of persecution in this country, and they're going through it all over the world, Christians, uh, we could end up in jail and not be around any other brothers and sisters. How comforting to know that there are brothers and sisters who've already passed on who can watch us. Now, let me comfort you a little bit. The idea of somebody being able to watch you from heaven may sound kind of creepy. They don't mean that they're watching you while you're taking in a shower or any other private things. Private areas are seen only by God. Matthew 6, Jesus says, when you're praying, pray to your Father in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. It's during the times of trial and testing in those times where we need to take a stand. Let me close with a quote from William Barclay, one of the great Bible commentators. He said, an actor would perform with double intensity if he knew that a famous actor was in the audience watching. An athlete would strive with double effort if he knew that outstanding or famous Olympic athletes were watching. Likewise, folks, if your Christianity is being displayed in the presence of those who've already run the race, already conquered, sweat, bled, served as an example, died, What a fantastic incentive to go on. We'll see you next time. The Bob Siegel Show podcast is a production of Bob Siegel and Cross Global Media. Visit us online and subscribe to the show at cgmradio.com slash bob.